reflect the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition, the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each week, my goal here is straightforward to introduce you to key government executives and thought leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. In this series, I welcome former government executives to reflect on their public service to offer firsthand account on the work they did, the challenges they faced, successes they achieved, and advice they may want to share. What was it like to lead the Defense Innovation Unit, DIU? How has DIU transformed the way the U.S. Department of Defense feels commercial technology? And what does the future hold for innovation at DOD? Today, I welcome back to the show Mike Brown, former director of the Defense Innovation Unit, to explore these questions and much more. Mike, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me back. So, Mike, you recently ended your tenure as the director of Defense Innovation Unit at uh, the U.S. Department of Defense. What attracted you to that role? And how, more importantly, how did you evolve the vision and the mission of DIU from its inception to the time you left? Well, I think what attracted me was a chance to have an impact, make a difference. Uh, and this was really in an entirely new space than where I spent my career as a, as a business executive. And in getting to uh, leading DIU, I spent some time looking at what China was doing to invest in early stage technology companies. That's really how I came to DIU. And of course, what I saw scared me uh, China was very actively involved in early stage technology investing. And I think uh, the work that I did with Padmeet Singh highlighted that, uh, also scared some others and prompted some action in terms of strengthening some of the protections that we have in the US, namely the passage of something called the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act. So the chance to uh, do something to address that issue, make sure that the U.S. Defense Department was taking advantage of all of the innovation that we're seeing around us uh, in Silicon Valley and Boston and the other innovation hubs around the country. So that's, that's what attracted me. Uh, how the, the mission evolved, I'd say it really was the same mission uh, that I took on that uh, exists today. How do we accelerate the adoption of these technologies? Because 50, 60 years ago, the Defense Department was inventing most of what it needed. Uh, think about the space race and the drive to miniaturize electronics and uh, at that point, the beginning of networking. So at that time, the department was very involved in the development of many of the technologies that it needed. Uh, if you fast forward to today, uh, we are inventing, developing probably about 20% of the technologies that we need. Most are coming from the commercial sector. So that's where the mission of DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit is so important. We've got to access what's happening in the best of the commercial world. So that we've got AI, autonomy, cyber tools, those type of technologies, whatever's at the leading edge available to the US military. So Mike, as you reflect on your time at DIU, 
What were your key strategic objectives on the first day you took over? And how significantly did these objectives evolve, morph, or get overtaken by events or the realities of the bureaucracy that you had to deal with? Well, I think the strategic objectives remained uh, consistent. One of the things that uh, my team had told me coming into the job at DIU is we needed contracting capacity. So if you think about uh, bringing technology into the military, it's got to start with some way of evaluating that technology and testing it in a military application. And we did that through contracting a prototyping process. And contracting means we've got to get vendors on contract to see how they do. So uh, before my time, we were working exclusively with some other parties within the Defense Department where we were not a priority. In fact, had very small contracts relative to what they were doing. So it was very important for us to develop our own contracting capacity. And my first day on the job was uh, sitting with the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen Lord at the time, asking her for delegated contracting authority so that we could go out and hire a small team that uh, is responsible today for about two thirds of our contracting. We still work with some uh, outside uh, parties outside to DIU to supplement that. But today, the primary way we're contracting with vendors is through DIU's own contracting capacity. The strategic objectives, so I mentioned one contracting, were really to make sure that we started to scale DIU. So we already had proven some early successes. DIU's, uh, as an example, responsible for Kessel Run, if you've heard about that, the software factory that the Air Force developed. That started out as a DIU project. We already had some early wins. We needed to scale that. We needed to make sure that we had a process and the talent uh, to make sure that we could do that on a much broader scale, many more projects. And I feel like we got there. Um, by the time I left, we were doing 100 projects simultaneously. We'd introduced 100 new vendors. We brought 50 capabilities over the line from uh, testing them out to putting them in warfighters' hands. That really was the key mission for us. That's great. So, you know, I want to stay on this a little longer. Operationally, Mike, can you introduce to the audience how it was organized, DIU was organized, what's the structure and how it worked? Yeah, so basically, uh, if you think about what we're doing, we're trying to understand what are the most important problems the Defense Department has and match them with uh, possibilities that come from the commercial sector. What are the technologies out there? that can help us address those problems. We're not just trying to shop cool tech into the Pentagon. Frankly, that's a waste of time. It's really what meets a, meets a current operational need. So we set up a structure that basically mirrored that problem. So we already had project management skills. That's, that's gonna be critical in bringing technology across. What we complemented that with when I came on board were two additional organizations. One, defense engagement, so let's have a dedicated team in the private sector from most of where most of my experience lies, we'd call that sales. Uh, since it's an internal function, uh, we don't tend to use that term of sales, but it's really the business development or selling uh, function to bring in the opportunities, bring in the problems. What are the most important problems that the Navy, the Air Force, the Army are facing? So that's a funnel issue. How do we create a broad funnel and sort for the best? And then uh, the counterpart would be, let's develop a strong organization that can develop the vendors, make sure that folks know about those problems, and we can make it easy for commercial vendors to work with the military, a very tall order. Uh, and 
that we called commercial engagement. So we, we added to project management, defense engagement, how to get the most important problem and commercial engagement, how to make sure we had a robust set of vendors available for every project that we would work on. And I think one of the innovative things that we did was we wanted to understand what that vendor landscape looked like before we ever got a problem. So in these areas of AI or autonomy, who are the vendors? Who's being successful commercially in terms of having their product deployed? And uh, basically, who are, who are the best out there, the most successful that we can bring to the military? So that's, that's how the organizational structure worked, bringing those three organizations together as a team. That's got to be challenging when you're the first uh, director of, of, a, of a new unit. So I'm wondering, Mike, what were some of the top management challenges you faced while leading DIU? And, and to what extent were you able to shift uh, them from challenges to opportunities? In terms of the management challenges, you know, they're very similar to what I faced as a CEO. Um, we needed to build a team. There was some rebuilding of capability when I came in that was necessary needed to get resources for the organization, a little bit different than what we do on the private sector side with fundraising with venture capitalists. This involved working with the department leadership and Congress to get the right resources for the organization to continue to scale. And then the third was, what are the metrics we're focused on? I really wanted DIU to uh, be known as an organization that was focused on some objectives and for us to be hitting the ball out of the park. And the metric, which I think was very appropriate, was how many of our projects uh, get across this line to getting into warfighters' hands. In other words, we don't want to be about demonstration and experiments. We want to be about providing new capability into warfighters' hands. So I'm very proud of the fact that we got 50 of the capabilities that we tested across that line into warfighters' hands. And we use that as our North Star or key metric uh, on whether we were doing the right thing. What was it resulting in getting new capability to help our warfighters? That's great, Mike. So I'd like to delve into maybe some of the things you did, some of the initiatives that you pursued. And one place I'd like to start, Mike, is around the regional outreach strategy you pursued. Can you tell us more about that? What did you learn from that effort? How did the strategy evolve to help you inform many of your early successes? And is there anything that you might've done differently with this outreach? So we, uh, had a couple of offices at DIU when I started. Uh, we're headquartered in Silicon Valley. We had Austin, Boston, and the Pentagon. And over time, what we realized is we really needed to develop these innovation uh, hubs, the vendors that we would work with from different regions of the country. So most notably, we started a Chicago office because we wanted more outreach to Midwest where we felt we were underrepresented in terms of vendors. This became pretty important when we uh, added a new portfolio or area of technology, which was energy. So one of the areas that's the fastest growing within DIU today is bringing in vendors to work on how do we uh, make sure that our use of energy within the department, the Department of Defense is the world's largest energy consumer. As we as we move move things around the world, how do we make sure that we're most efficiently using that? Uh, we're thinking about alternative fuels. Um, storing of energy through new battery technology, et cetera. So that uh, really made, made it imperative for us to be building on the infrastructure that's, that's in, the, in the American Midwest. I'll just give you a quick example of that. Uh, so one of the key projects there is taking existing Army vehicles 
something uh, called the joint like tactical vehicle and the Humvees that we know the, the Army uses. And how do we convert those to a, a hybrid fleets, uh, the way our trucking industry has done in our country for decades now. So anytime the engine is on, uh, we might only need that power for moving the vehicle forward. But of course, the engine was on for a lot of other reasons. Radios being used, the heater might have been turned on. In those cases, we can use a battery, much more fuel efficient, and actually extend the range of those vehicles by about 20%. We learned that 80% of the time the vehicle was turned on, the vehicle wasn't moving anywhere. We, we were just using some other capability um, like the heat or the radio or something like that. So very important project to convert uh, those vehicles to, uh, to be hybrid. So regional outreach strategy was basically a way to expand our outreach beyond where we had physical offices. And so we uh, have both use those physical offices as a center for an entire region, as we've done with the Chicago office and reaching out to the Midwest and more of the states there. And then we've also taken DIU on the road with some road shows uh, to be able to explain to a group of folks who might be meeting in a particular part of the country, uh, North Carolina, Seattle, and explain what we do so that now a new group of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists would know about our mission and hopefully connect to DIU and stay abreast of what problems we were trying to solve. We're trying to expand the number of vendors and investors who think about the Defense Department as one of the ways their company can grow. That's wonderful, Mike. So, you know, I want to stay on this because so, our first interview you did, we did, I was very intrigued by your fast follower strategy. And I was hoping you could revisit that, Mike, for us. And, and how's the strategy and approach resonated within the department in general? Okay, well, let's talk about what it is. The fast follow strategy is really taking a note from the private sector and saying, as many technology companies want to be out first with technology, and that's the strategy of, of, of many companies that I've worked with in the past, not everyone can be first. If you're not first, you're trying to fast follow or as quickly as possible, get current with technology. Uh, in the department, what I observed is that uh, if we weren't inventing the technology, uh, then often we were a slow follower. So it took us a long time. In fact, it takes the department nine to 26 years on average to bring a new capability into the department. If, if you're developing the technology, I think we can go faster, but there's some natural limitations to how fast you can go. If you're merely buying technology that already exists, like AI, software, cyber tools, uh, autonomous capability through small drones, you, you don't want to be taking a decade to bring that capability in. So what we needed is an alternative way to evaluate and procure that technology. That alternative, uh, we call the DIU, the fast follower strategy. We need to fast follow what the commercial world is doing. And the department needs an alternative way, a fast follower strategy, to bring that uh, capability in. And it really revolves around a couple of things. One, we got to understand what part of the department should be responsible for those technologies. In other words, these technologies like AI or cyber are not developed for a particular branch of the service, maybe Air Force, which is the way we bring in our new capabilities. So we got to figure out who's responsible for bringing that capability in, like commercial satellite imagery to support the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, we've got to know is that the NRO, the NGA, is that Space Force, Air Force. The person responsible then can establish the group that's going to evaluate that technology and most importantly, the budget that will provide that ongoing capability. And with that, and if we think about this as 
we've got to be not developing, but evaluating technology and quickly on a schedule that the commercial market provides it. We've got to be thinking about a very fast cycle time to evaluate and field that technology. That's a very different motion than the department has for most of what it brings in, developing a new tank or, or next generation uh, fighter for the Air Force. So that new motion will help us uh, bring in more vendors. So we diversify the supply base, keep the warfighter current with technology rather than dealing with technology that might be a decade old and better value for our taxpayers because we're using commercial technology instead of something we're developing in a bespoke fashion uh, just for the military. So we're leveraging that much larger consumer or business base uh, that commercial vendors are going after. Uh, so that's a win-win uh, for vendors, for our warfighters, and for the Department of Defense. So our view is we need to be adopting this as quickly as possible. You asked how it's resonated. I think uh, things take time within the Defense Department, so I think it is resonating. Um, but we're yet to implement this on a on a broad scale. That's fascinating. So, you know, Mike, you point out that um, clearly there's a need for long-term research that uh, places like DARPA does. But I, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it takes on average about, was it, nine to 26 years for the department to bring new capability online? While you folks, at when you were at uh, DIU, were leveraging commercial technology and could bring that in in one or two years. I, I was wondering, how does the department balance um, between capabilities that can be deployed near term versus DOD's average time frame to do it? How do, how do you balance that act? Well, your question really uh, uh, foretells uh, what the department needs to do. We're not doing a very good job of balancing that, to be honest with you, because this is rooted in the department's history of developing its own technology. And of course, if you're developing your own technology and you're the first customer, it takes a little bit longer to make sure that that technology is ready for prime time, ready to be deployed. Commercial technology, we just need to evaluate that in the military application and get it to the field. That can be a much faster process. Again, one to two years instead of one to two decades. But I don't think we have a very good sense within the department of how much more we could be doing with commercial technology and therefore deploying it on a broad scale and deploying it rapidly. So this is one of the key opportunities I saw in my time at DOD is we need to better balance what can be brought in in one to two years and what we're not developing with the capability that we are developing. I'm a huge fan of DARPA. Uh, that's led to some uh, incredible innovations that frankly, Silicon Valley and other innovation hubs are still building on. If you think about the combination of GPS technology, the, the internet, miniaturized electronics, entire industries have been built on the combination of those technologies, all started with defense investment. Uh, but as we think about what the department needs going forward to modernize faster, uh, many more of those technologies, as I've already mentioned, are going to come from the commercial world, not just from something we invent at the Defense Department. Therefore, we need this different process of fast follower strategy to bring it in. And we need more of a focus on are we balancing what can be brought in in one to two years, more investment in bringing in those capabilities in one to two years. If you spend time, as I have with Admiral Eccolino, who leads our Indo-Pacific uh, combatant command. So he's responsible for all of our military, Air Force, Navy, Army, Marines, Space Force, from the Pacific coast of the U.S. all the way to India. The, it's just a vast region. 
and he will tell you, I'm interested in what I can deliver to my uh, my team, my warfighters in one to two years. Don't tell me about something that's going to be available in a decade, because his time frame is I've got to be ready to fight whenever I'm called upon to do so. And I can't say I'll I'll, I'll come help out in a decade. I might have to do that on a very, uh, very rapid time frame. So it, it just underscores the need for the department to better balance. What can we do to, to shore up our capabilities uh, in a short time period and balance that with what we're doing from a long-term investment standpoint? That's a great response. And it leads into my next question, Mike, which is, you know, what more needs to be done to transform the culture of the department and the services to see beyond, say, defense-specific programs and field technology that can be that can work and be necessary across programs? So if there's one magic wand I uh, had uh, and was responsible for the whole defense department, the one thing I would focus on is speed. Uh, it's, a, it's the largest organization in the world with 3 million employees. Anytime you have an organization that large, you have a lot of processes in place to make sure things are consistent, uh, to make sure that we're compliant, uh, with all of the rules that have been in place over decades. Um, I see the benefit of that, but the downside is we're not moving at a speed rapidly enough to keep up with competitors, to address emerging threats, uh, to take advantage of new technology opportunities, which we could feel for work fighters. All of these things could be improved if we were focused on speed. How fast does it take us to do every process within the Defense Department to make decisions to get new capabilities fielded? If we were focused on speed, it would then cause the right changes in terms of transforming the culture, as you say, um, and have us think about what's outside the Defense Department. Because if we have to modernize the department faster, we have to turn to commercial technology to do that. We can't wait for decades for what we're working on inside to, to, to make that required transformation. So speed is the key, and it really reflects uh, what was uh, emphasized in the national security strategy of the, of the administration that just came out yesterday, which is we have peer-level adversaries now, namely China, and we're also worried about Russia. And if we want to make sure that we've got better capability rather than just fielding whatever we have today that we've been working on for the past few decades, we've got to be working at speed and driving a culture of innovation um, to, to modernize faster. How can commercial technologies help the U.S. military services meet their missions? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. 
Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service, with Mike Brown, former director of the Defense Innovation Unit. So, Mike, I read that follow-on contracts for vendors that DIU has brought in uh, is on the order of, of $4 billion almost. So I, I was wondering, as I read that, what more needs to be done to create incentives for entrepreneurs to think about national security needs and for investors to think about backing these kind of companies and finding new companies that they can bring into this space? Yeah, so uh, I'd say we're pretty proud of the fact that we've introduced 100 new vendors at DIU and that that's led to follow-on contracts uh, on the order of something that would start with a B for billion. But this is still a drop in the bucket compared to what the Defense Department has bought uh, during the time period that DIU has been around. So during the time period we've been developing that $4 billion of opportunity, the Defense Department has probably bought $1 trillion worth of a year. Now, it's never going to be the case that commercial vendors are going to be supplying most of what the Defense Department needs because aircraft carriers and fighter aircraft are going to be big ticket items and we're always going to need those unique military capabilities. But again, if we think about autonomy, space technology, uh, digital wearables, cyber tools, this could be a lot more than the $4 billion we've, uh, we've been able to bring in. It probably should be 10 times that. So what needs to be done is have the department actually buy more of that technology, have that number be bigger, 40 billion instead of 4 billion. That's gonna be what starts this virtuous circle of investors and entrepreneurs lifting their heads up to say, wow, that's a pretty big market over there. I wonder if what we're developing for the commercial world could be applicable. In many cases it is. And to have them think about the defense department as a new vertical or growth market uh, for them. So if we're closer to top of mind for those investors and entrepreneurs, we're gonna get more of their attention as they develop new capabilities, new products, solutions as well. So that what's, is, is what needs to happen. We need the whole system to be a lot bigger so that we get the attention of the $350 billion that's invested each year by venture capitalists in US companies. Uh, we need more of that attention uh, aimed at the Defense Department's needs that are national security needs so that we can take advantage of, uh, of, of that innovation that's happening outside the department. If the numbers are bigger in terms of what we buy, then that makes us a more attractive potential customer. And then we get more investment activity, not only to support the, the vendors who have been qualified, represented in that 4 billion number, but we're gonna get new companies focused on national security needs. That's that kind of virtuous circle we need to make sure that we are delivering the best of US innovation uh, to the military and the military takes advantage of that. So we have the best for our warfighters. My complimenting on that insight, are there any other ways DIU can specifically provide innovative businesses and startups the opportunity to sort of focus and solve high impact national security problems? So if you think about what we're doing, we're trying to give visibility for the fact that this opportunity exists. So we're uh, trying to make sure all of the entrepreneurs, investors understand how successful we've already been. So 4 billion is a start. It's not the, the end point we need, but it's a start so that we can have them start to think about what we're doing. And then a lot of what we do at DU is, is make the process of selling to the department easier. 
uh, I'll give two examples. So one is uh, it would take an inordinate amount of resources for a startup company to figure out who I should be selling to. That whole business development exercise to sell to a, a group within the Department of Defense could be a daunting and, and very time consuming. In a sense, DIU is qualifying the customer, qualifying DOD to make sure there is uh, an end user urgent need, leadership support and budget to bring in a commercial vendor. Just that qualifying activity, uh, which companies set themselves up to do to qualify quickly with a commercial customer is a huge advantage. So in other words, we don't bring in uh, vendors on a speculative basis and say, let's see if we can get the department interested in this technology. We start first with identifying what's the urgent need from the department, what problem are they trying to solve? That's the role we talked about before of the defense engagement team. That's a huge advantage for companies that want to sell to the defense department. I don't have to have a hundred meetings to figure out whether there's a real need and whether there's budget allocated. DIU's done that for me. So that's key. And the second would be, uh, how can we make the process of actually uh, going through a qualification process easier? So we're doing the project management, both for the defense department organization or what we'd say mission partner. So that area of the army, for example, going back to the hybridization, that is responsible for uh, creating a fleet of hybrid vehicles. We're working with them to help manage that process with vendors so that the vendor has to come in and just provide their solution. And let's test it and see how it works. They don't have to go through that process of constructing that. Uh, what is the prototyping period? How would I get on a contract, et cetera? DIU is helping to manage that. So in that way, we're helping facilitate that entire selling process for commercial vendors to make it faster and easier. That's terrific. So, like, I like switch gears a little bit and talk about your relationship um, and collaboration across the federal government. In particular, uh, can you tell us more about the new partnership DIU created with the U.S. General Services Administration (GSA) to further scale tech solutions? Right. So, this uh, is the happy circumstance when we have a solution that's been qualified. How do we better ensure fulfillment? So uh, when you're working within the government, uh, I wish I could tell you that it was like the Amazon one-click process. If somebody wants to buy a small drone, a piece of AI software or something, but it's not, uh, that can be cumbersome as well. And the GSA is, of course, uh, one of the principal suppliers of goods and services to the federal government. And uh, DIU said, why don't we work with GSA so that uh, for many of the commercial items that we're qualifying, GSA could be the selling partner. So think about that as the fulfillment house for the defense department for something that we might qualify. Take small drones as an example of where we qualified five different cyber hardened small drones that have to be compliant with the, the law in terms of using Chinese components, meaning they can't use Chinese components and, they, and the drones, the defense department sources can't be Chinese uh, manufactured. So we worked with vendors to qualify US or allied uh, suppliers and then put those on the GSA schedule. And then that makes it easier on an ongoing basis, not necessarily for the uh, Defense Department mission partner who originally was tasking us to look at small drones, but anyone else in the Defense Department that might wanna take advantage of that work and say, I need a small drone. I can go to the GSA now and procure something that uh, DIU, and in this case, the Army Short Range Reconnaissance Office worked on to uh, uh, 
to qualify a good solution. So I can take advantage of that work. I don't have to do it myself, and I can buy it from a government fulfillment capability, which is the GSA. Mike, earlier you described for us the first follower strategy you pursued at the EIU. I was wondering, could you tell us more about the hedge strategy and how it was developed, why it was developed? How does it complement first follower? And how does it seek to generate a sense of urgency for emerging technology adoption? Right. Well, we talked about the fast follower strategy before, and these two are complementary. This kind of is looking a step earlier. How do we identify what we need? So fast followers, if we know what we need, small drones, commercial satellite imagery, how do we make sure that we've got a way to assess and procure that technology? This is really looking upstream. How do we know what we need? Well, we have uh, fielded many of the same large platforms, aircraft carriers, uh, F-35s, for years and our adversaries have been watching what we're fielding. In some cases, they've copied it. The Chinese have stolen designs for our uh, fighter aircraft as an example. And they also see how do we take the gear that we have and, uh, uh, and use that in the field, what we might call uh, operations or con-ops. How do we go to war? How do we fight? So that's also very much studied by our adversaries. Unfortunately, because we've been so active on the world stage with uh, with conflicts, um, whether it's been in Syria uh, or, or elsewhere, our adversaries have seen us uh, in action. Uh, so that gives them a blueprint, a, a, a way to study what they might do to, to uh, fight against us. We need an element of surprise there. We need to be using more commercial technology to be able to field capabilities in one to two years, as we talked about before. And that creates a hedge against the very large platforms. So this isn't a substitution. We need those large platforms, but we need to complement those with more capabilities that bring in uh, smaller uh, uh, capabilities, unmanned, low cost, resilience comes therefore if uh, we're in a conflict with a more capable adversary, they're gonna shoot down some of the capability that we have. So we need capabilities resilient that can uh, go on and continue to take the fight forward if, if some of the capability is lost. So this concept of bringing things that are small, unmanned, uh, many uh, for resiliency and low cost is an incredible complement to the defense capability that we feel today. That's the hedge strategy. How do we hedge those large platforms? We bring new capability, we bring it faster, and it brings an element of strategic surprise. And if we can agree on what those things are, then the fast follower strategy becomes the great complement how we can bring those into the department. And I think the combination of those two would make us a much more modern force, much more capable, much more ready to fight tonight if that's what we're called upon to do. Excellent. So Mike, what is the commercial solutions catalog? And I was wondering, how does it benefit the department and the federal government as a whole? Is this an evolving catalog? And if so, what do you, what's next? Yeah, absolutely evolving catalog. So the idea here was going back to what we talked about with the, the GSA, a fulfillment house. How would we bring more visibility to the 50 capabilities we've already qualified and are available to anyone in the Department of Defense or federal government if they'd like to buy that? A good example, again, small drones. Uh, that was important, not just for the Army and the Defense Department, but also some of the other organizations that use small drones like Customs and Border Patrol in, uh, in DHS, Department of Interior, 
to uh, survey federal land. So why have those organizations uh, you know, redo work we've already done? Why don't they leverage uh, that work and they can buy off the GSA schedule? So we then created a commercial solutions catalog. It's really just a compendium of those 50 solutions uh, that anyone can see on our website. And of course, for those folks in the government, we make more information than what's on the website available. But you can see what are those 50 capabilities. And in that you would see cyber tools, you'd see uh, the small drones that we just talk, talked about, commercial satellite imagery and other things that we have already qualified in military applications that are available to the rest of the Defense Department. That's terrific. So, uh, Mike, uh, the other thing I was wondering about is um, the launch of the Immersive Commercial Acquisition Program uh, to scale commercial solutions openings. W what is this? So we're really trying to expand not only our own capacity at DIU to do contracting. We talked about that uh, when we started talking about how important it was, and also to spread the word about how other organizations at DOD uh, can take advantage of what we've learned at DIU in terms of procuring commercial items. So we decided, why don't we start a training program? We'll call it an immersive experience. That's why it has that word, immersive commercial acquisition program. Why don't we bring some folks in in a cohort and have them live with us and uh, help us do our work and learn how we're using our own processes at DIU to scale this activity of bringing in commercial uh, commercial uh, solutions. So we have a process that we've developed over time that maximizes the amount of competition and uh, minimizes the vendor burden. We call that a commercial solutions opening process. You can learn more about that on our on the DIU website as well, which is uh, at diu.mil. And that basically is mirrored on a commercial process. How would we qualify uh, different vendors uh, and how would we test those in military application? And for those vendors, uh, how can we immediately get them on a production contract? That leverages an authority that Congress gave to the Defense Department called Other Transaction Authority. Something that Congress gave to NASA back in 1958 after Sputnik so that uh, we could move faster than what uh, the department uses for most things it buys, which is the Federal Acquisition Regulations or the FAR. So why not use that a more rapid, more flexible process, which we've uh, taken as a, the underpinning of commercial solutions opening for more of the things that we buy. And so the Immersive Commercial Acquisition Program or ICAP is a way to train more people in how to understand and use these, uh, use these techniques. So this year, DIU has started with a group of about uh, six or eight officers brought from around the department. So I think we have Navy, Air Force, Army uh, participating in this as we train those new acquisition officers or more experienced officers in this, this way of working so that as they go back then to their service next year, it's a one-year program, uh, they're going to be very steeped in what we do and be able to spread the word. That's great, Mike. So, you know, on some level, DIU is facing what appears to be a shortage of funding and insufficient support, maybe from senior defense department leaders, as well as, um, you know, issues regarding the, the budget process. Um, I was wondering if you concur with the, these issues that I've just raised, and if so, what can be done to address them? So I absolutely concur. I think this is uh, a function not of the department saying what DIU is doing is, 
is not that important, but the fact that it takes us so long to develop a budget at the Department of Defense, it takes two and a half years from the time we start the planning on how we're gonna spend money before that money is approved and we can start spending. Two and a half years, imagine in the corporate world, you know, if we said we're gonna to have to start two and a half years before the fiscal year starts with our planning process, and frankly, get that approved a year before the spending starts by the board of directors, and then we can't change it. It's a crazy system and it needs to be reformed. Congress has recognized that. And uh, in this year's National Offense Authorization Act, they funded a commission called the uh, PPB&E, which stands for Programming, Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution. Basically, think about that as a budgeting process. So how do we reform that? What changes should we make? So I'm optimistic that uh, that PPB commission, which in itself is a two-year uh, time frame for them to do their work, I'm optimistic they're going to come up with some good ideas that will help us improve that. But I think we could all agree that two and a half years as a process for the budget for the Defense Department is not competitive if we're competing against uh, a country like China. We have to be able to move faster. That may have uh, been sufficient when uh, we won the Cold War and we had a generation where we didn't have a pure adversary, but uh, it's certainly not competitive uh, for the future. So uh, this means that uh, the budget that the Defense Department is working on and then we eventually get approved by Congress tends to lag the support we've already gotten from Congress. So to put that in specific terms, we got a record level of budget approved in fiscal year 21. So that was last year's budget. But the 22 budget, which was already being worked at the Office of Management and Budget and on its way to the Hill, where the department had already finished its work on that, implied about a 30% budget cut for DIU. Again, not because someone said, let's take DIU down 30%. That was reflecting where DIU's budget was three years ago. So this has created a uh, resourcing problem for DIU. We've worked hard to expand our capability. I mentioned the scaling was our uh, you know, primary challenge when I came to lead DIU. And now we've expanded to working on 100 projects simultaneously. Uh, well, we need some increase in the budget or at least keeping that flat to be able to continue that momentum. And so it's very hard to deal with a 30% budget decline when you have that expanding demand for what we do. Uh, we've never had more demand from our mission partners, Navy, Air Force, Army, Marines, Space Force, than what we have today. More and more people have heard about what we're doing. They wanna take advantage of our capability and bring in more commercial technology. That's exactly what we want. But the budgeting process taking so long uh, has not really kept pace with that. So that's, that's what we're trying to do is give a little bit of visibility to that and uh, get some help from both from the department as they think about future budgets, because we're now working on the fiscal year 24 budget within the department, and some help from uh, our uh, wide number of supporters in Congress who would like to see us expand what we're doing. That's terrific. Um, Mike, you, you mentioned throughout our conversation uh, our adversaries, um, near peer adversaries, including China. And you were the first, uh, you were one of the first to sound the alarm about uh, Chinese venture capital, which you referenced earlier. I, I was wondering if you could revisit this question for me and tell me what, what more is being done to address it, to mitigate it, and maybe tackle uh, the influence of adversarial capital. So fortunately, there's a lot that's being done here. So uh, one of the 
uh, pieces of legislation that uh, I was able to work on and support was the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act that we talked about. That gave CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US, which has the jurisdiction to review any transactions where a foreign company wants to buy US assets that uh, could be important for national security. It gave them more authority, which uh, they're using now to be able to scrutinize uh, many more things beyond outright acquisitions. So it's possible for a foreign company to come in and make an investment and have a controlling interest. Previously, that was not part of what CFIUS was able to look at. Now they're able to look at transactions like that, transactions that would uh, result in any transfer of intellectual property from the US to, uh, to an adversary like China. So FIRMA is one part of it. At the same time, export control uh, was reformed through the Export Control Reform Act of 2018. And while there hasn't been as much done with that uh, in the subsequent years, now there's a big push by the administration to take advantage of that. Uh, and you might have seen that recently in the uh, work that's being done to look at limiting uh, Chinese access to semiconductor capability, design, uh, manufacturing test capability, which is primarily owned by U.S. vendors. Th there's also, uh, I would say, a tremendous growth in the number of uh, sources of capital focused on defense tech or dual use, which means technology can be used both for defense as well as commercial um, commercial technology. So in these areas of AI, cyber tools, autonomy, space, uh, there's a lot more venture capital, private capital available to those companies as the need for that has been highlighted. So I'm, I'm pleased to say that not only are we implementing some of the sticks, but we also have the carrots of more capital being focused in this area. The more we can make uh, DIU uh, successful in terms of ensuring that the military is actually buying more of this technology, then we create that virtuous circle I talked about before. So the good news is there's a tremendous awareness of the problem uh, between what's been done with some of the new legislation and the department, I'm, I'm sorry, the government using its existing authority, like the sanctions authority, creating these entity lists of what technology, what companies we shouldn't be selling to because they're actually supporting the PLA or the Chinese armed forces. Uh, that's created a lot of a lot of visibility for this problem. Good example there, Hikvision, the primary supplier of the facial recognition that's being used for you know population control, especially in the Uyghurs with the Uyghur population out in Xinjiang. So companies like that, that are helping the PLA and helping the Chinese with uh, very repressive uh, technologies uh, are ones that, uh, you know, that are being highlighted here and uh, the government's finding a way where we're not supporting those, those technologies going forward. And some of that's come through the legislation that we talked about exercise and exercising the new authorities and then we've got uh, U.S. capital now that's able to take some of the place of what before was adversarial capital funding these, uh, these U.S. high technology ventures. What are some of the most important accomplishments of the Defense Innovation Unit? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, 
follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adopting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service with Mike Brown, former director of the Defense Innovation Unit. You know, um, your perspective comes from leading DIU. Uh, Your federal agencies are looking at modern methodologies and technologies to improve public experience with government. I was wondering, from your seat at the time during your federal service, what are some of the common challenges being faced across agencies? And would you like to comment on maybe some successes that you saw? Well, I think uh, a number of um, my counterparts that I talked to when I was leading DIU faced this problem of uh, we don't have the budget that we need to be able to really experiment with new technologies and and develop them. We might only have a budget to kind of keep the lights on with what we're doing. So we have to make the call on where is it important to be able to modernize and modernize faster. You do see some examples of that. Uh, you see some money being put into modernizing the IT infrastructure. So the CIO and the federal government now has more, uh, more resources available to help uh, modernize that. But the use of technology goes well beyond IT. Uh, and when we look at what, for example, the Defense Department needs to do, it's, it's, a, it's a much more uh, Herculean task than just what we have to do to reform our, or, or uh, modernize our IT systems. So I think it's primarily a issue of budget, uh, but it also point to this cultural aspect we talked about before, which is speed. If, if that were more of a priority, not just for the Defense Department, but across the federal government, uh, that we have to modernize faster and we're gonna measure uh, our leaders on how well they're encouraging uh, speed as one of the key metrics, I think we get uh, the, the right behavior that we're looking for. Mm, that's great. So Mike, during your tenure in federal service, I was wondering how have you sought or how did you seek to create a culture of innovation? And, and where I'm going with this is find a way to challenge old ways of doing things while expanding the risk appetite. And are there any lessons that you'd like to share about implementing and sustaining a culture of innovation? Yeah, well, I, I draw on what we talked about already in terms of speed. I think it's uh probably widely known that uh, speed is not how we characterize the pace in the federal government. Um, That can be changed. That's a leadership uh, issue. We have to emphasize the importance of speed uh, to be able to modernize our capabilities. I think that's particularly acute in the Defense Department, but I think other departments in the federal government would benefit by that. I think our our culture is one of compliance. So there's so many rules that get created uh, our uh, our legal counsel in uh, organizations with the federal government has tremendous ability to slow things down and say, let's not take risk there. Well, this is a balance. Uh, if I don't take any risk, 
yeah, I will be completely compliant, but I may not be able to move the organization forward. And in the Defense Department, I worry that we don't get the capabilities we need into warfighters' hands. And we may be completely compliant, but we may be fighting with yesterday's capabilities. I don't think that's a very good trade-off. I don't think there's enough attention put on that risk-reward uh, balance. So I'm not saying uh, here uh, we shouldn't uh, follow the law. We have to follow the law. If the law needs to be changed, we need efforts to change the law. But within uh, following the law, we're often risk-averse to try new things because uh, that may raise some more questions. Uh, for example, the use of other transaction authority that I mentioned earlier. I would uh, say that while that's being increasingly used, it's not used in a widespread fashion. <laughs> and why is that? Uh, that capability is available to everyone in the Defense Department. We're not trained in how to operate with that authority. Uh, we don't have the explicit support of all the legal counsel across DOD to use that. So these are the cultural things that we would need to change uh, to be able to move faster, empower people to innovate uh, rather than being focused purely on compliance. You're not going to get in trouble if you do things the same way we've done them for 20, 30, 40 years. True, but you're also not moving the, the mission forward as rapidly as you can. I think what we try to do at uh, DIU during my tenure is ensure that speed is a priority. We explicitly measured ourselves on how fast could we get new vendors on board. But we also tried to uh, reduce the hierarchy, which is inherent in a military organization where everyone has a rank. So we did this by uh, referring to people by their first names, not using their rank, um, instilling the idea that we want a meritocracy, we want the best ideas, we don't just want ideas from the top. Uh, we didn't wear uniforms uh, for the times when we were in the office, so everyone was in civilian clothes, and set a culture that we wanted people to contribute no matter where they were in the organization, no matter what their rank was. So that was important for me as the director to want to listen to what young lieutenants or um, civilians earlier in their career had to say, not just listen to the, the folks who were leading the organization. Those are the kind of cultural tenants that we want to establish that help us create this culture of innovation we're looking for. And we emphasize this in, as leaders with what we talk about, uh, how we reward people, how we measure performance. If we're including that risk appetite and uh, rewarding people for the creative ideas, the speed they're taking, the risk that they're taking, then people uh, are pretty smart to pick up on those signals. That's terrific advice. Um, I, I was wondering, Mike, um, what will you remember most about your government service? What are you most proud of? Well, clearly it'd be helping warfighters. I had a chance to see uh, so many of the missions uh, within the Department of Defense, which uh, you know we often don't reflect on how broad those are. Many of them are humanitarian assistance, disaster recovery missions. And DIU directly supported a number of uh, projects there, uh, first responders after hurricanes, California wildfires, uh, natural disasters uh, around the world. So our military is first on the ground in those situations. Uh, our military was critical to uh, uh, the vaccine development and distributing those vaccines uh, to respond to COVID. So being able to support warfighters and what they're doing, which as I just mentioned, often isn't uh, fighting war, but uh, being out on the front lines uh, to help not only American people, but uh, people around the world. And the chance uh, to work with so many of the 
really dedicated folks in our military was a real privilege. Uh, the military really trains a phenomenal cadre of, of dedicated people. And uh, I was very proud to help them. And it was an honor to be able to, uh, to work with them directly. Uh, people would often say to me, thank you for your service. But my service or sacrifice pales in comparison to those who actually had to be deployed overseas, put themselves into uh, harm's way so that we can enjoy the, the, the great life that we do in the United States with, with so many freedoms. So that, that's what I'm going to remember about my time. Before you go, Mike, I just had one last question. And that is, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? Well, first thing would be definitely do it. Uh, go, go make it happen. If you're considering a career, take the plunge. I would also say, uh, think about how you could construct a career that goes back and forth from public service to private sector. I think we're best served if we're able to blend the best of, of both of those worlds. So the best of what we can do to uh, move the country forward and support great missions like uh, those that DIU has, but also bring the best of what we've learned from the private sector to work at speed, uh, to encourage ideas from all sources, not just higher ranks, um, and to be able to take, take risk. So I think a combination of time spent in the federal government plus uh, spent in the private sector would actually be ideal. And then, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say bring patience. Uh, the government moves at a different pace, so you have to have a different time scale in mind for getting change accomplished. So, so bring patience and realizing you're not going to get everything done on the uh, on the first day, the first month, or first year, but not losing that sense of urgency that we need to drive forward and, and get it done. Mike, I want to thank you for coming back on the show, but most of all, I, I do want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. I appreciate that. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service with Mike Brown, former director of the Defense Innovation Unit. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. 
We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition. Pay benefits in retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.